You're listening to Dental Talk from VivaLearning.com. Thanks for joining us for this Viva podcast. Today we'll be discussing oral cancer and how you, the practitioner, can implement protocol that can help save patients' lives. Our guest is Dr. Stuart Lieblick, a world-respected oral and maxillofacial surgeon. He has contributed to over 19 textbooks and published over 45 peer-reviewed papers and abstracts related to oral surgery and oral medicine. He is a noted speaker nationwide and regularly appears on webinars for VivaLearning.com. He is currently in private practice in Avon, Connecticut, and is on the medical staff at a variety of hospitals in Connecticut. Dr. Lieblick, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. And thank you, Phil. Appreciate being here. So we've heard a lot of great stuff from you in the past on Viva Learning webinars, and you really do give fantastic webinars, uh, very highly rated, and you get tremendous attendance, and your, your stuff is just top-notch. We really appreciate you working with Viva Learning. Um, so with this podcast, we're going to be discussing oral cancer. So what are the signs of a suspicious oral lesion? Well, I think uh, it comes back to our role as dentists as being the healthcare provider of the oral cavity. And our examination of the patients will often leads to things that we just see that are different than every other patient. So they may be a sore or an ulceration, and maybe a white spot, uh, maybe a lump or a bump. And uh, our concerns are things that shouldn't be there uh, should, should have some form of a diagnosis determined so that we can provide the best possible outcome for our patients. Yeah. And do you think in general, the typical GP that's practicing dentistry in the U.S. takes that very seriously, these um, oral examinations looking for suspicious oral lesions, or are they not doing that to, at the level that you think they should be? Well, I think that's an important point. Uh, not only is it the dentist, but also his dental or her dental team. So the hygienist, the assistants, many times will see things that maybe perhaps we overlook because we're focused on a particular area of the oral cavity at that particular visit. So we may be doing a crown on number 19, and on the upper left quadrant, there's a, a sore or a white spot that just doesn't belong there. So a part of our role as the practitioner and the doctor is to empower our staff, to let them know that it's important for them to point things out to us, that they may see things and validate their findings so that our, we can then provide the best possible outcomes for our patient. And as we're going to talk about, uh, the key is, of course, early diagnosis with any type of cancer, but in particular, oral cancer. That is the, the main mantra or the main marching order that we have as health practitioners of the oral cavity. So what are some of the examination techniques <clears throat> that are currently available for the dental healthcare provider, dentist, hygienist? I'm not sure the assistant would be doing these exams. Would it be when you talk about the staff, you're talking about hygienists and dentists? Correct. I think we need to really encourage our hygienists to take a full look in the oral cavity. Uh, obviously, the white light examination or incandescent lights uh, allowing us to observe uh, with the mirror and our eyes to see all the areas of the oral cavity. Uh, taking a piece of gauze and having our patients stick out their tongue and looking along the sides. And I think we all think back to our days in dental school. We know that the danger areas in the oral cavity are particularly the lateral sides of the tongue and the ventral or underneath surface of the tongue, along with the inside of the cheeks or the buccal mucosa. So we need to pay particular attention to these areas and, and think in general non-keratinized tissues. Uh, they seem to have a higher sensitivity for developing oral cancers. And the term that we, we like to use when we describe these are PMDs, or potentially a prema, premature malignant disease or potentially malignant disease lesions. So identifying these early, and even if you're in general practice, uh, having a colleague uh, 
uh, an oral surgeon or even a periodontist that has uh, interest in these areas. Uh, with the use of digital technology, it's very simple uh, for us to snap a picture of something, uh, email it to a colleague, text it to a colleague. Of course, we want to maintain HIPAA confidentiality, so uh, patient identification factors should be done in an encrypted basis. But I think utilizing all our resources can be very helpful. And beyond just visual examination, there are other techniques that can then be used. There are uh, staining techniques of the oral cavities that are not typically used in the United States. Uh, toluidine blue, it's type of a blue dye uh, that can highlight areas that are potentially malignant or these PMDs. And there are also other screening tools such as using the natural tissue fluorescence. So our, our body tissues throughout our bodies will fluoresce when uh, hit by different wavelengths of light. And there are certain techniques that, and uh, adjuncts that can be used to potentially identify some areas that may not be overtly visible to us. So they're a, an adjunct. They're not uh, used uh, without a good oral examination with our eyes, uh, but they can be used to potentially see things around corners or underneath areas that might have been uh, previously overlooked. Yeah. So before we get into these adjuncts, and I do want you to share with our listeners some of these adjuncts that are out there, um, what are some of the causes of oral cancer? What are the, some of the risks we know about smoking. We know about chewing tobacco. Uh, vaping, you know, is probably another one. But if you can give us some insight into the risks and how those risk factors can help us evaluate the patient medical history so we can ascertain that this particular patient really needs a very careful checkup. Well, good point, Phil. And it's not only just the medical history, but also gathering their social history. And it's an area that maybe we're not all the most comfortable asking about, but uh, certainly cigarette smoking, I think we all understand, is a risk factor. Uh, pipe smoking, any type of oral irritant. And our body produces, uh, is very good at trying to clean up these potentially malignant things that can start. Uh, and when we uh, have a history of smoking and including vaping, uh, we're now finding out that our own body's genetic ability to prevent oral cancers from forming are significantly downregulated. So there are genes that are functioning all the time to prevent and clean up these uh, malignancies and these insults to our tissues. But when we smoke uh, and uh, we have a three times higher rate of developing an oral cancer, if you smoke and continuously use alcohol, your rate goes up to 30%. And so historically, that has been the most common cause of oral carcinomas or oral cancers. But over the last 10 years, the human papillomavirus, or HPV, has now overtaken uh, smoking as the number one causative risk factor for developing an oral cancer. So it's important uh, that we have conversations uh, with our patients about the risk of HPV infections, uh, one thing we can certainly do is encourage our patients to become vaccinated. Uh, the vaccines are typically were recommended for children under the age of 12. But now the CDC has changed those guidelines to up to the age of 45 years of, of age. And so we know that protecting ourselves from the human papillomavirus not only prevents the recurrent warts or the verrucous lesions from forming, but also does provide protection against the few subtypes of HPV that are specifically associated with oral and pharyngeal cancers. So that's one of the few vaccines that one can say is actually out there and may be a cancer preventative. So mm -hmm. having a conversation with patients, uh, asking them, have you been vaccinated for HPV? Would you consider it? 
especially in younger patients uh, and those under the age of 25, I think is an important role that we as dentists uh, can bring to our, our patients' health. Right. And in your experience, how many patients actually know they have HPV? Well, uh, many times it, it's found. Now, there are very innocent types of oral warts that we see. Uh, there are about 40 different types of the HPV virus, and only two of them, types 16 and 18, have been specifically associated with oral pharyngeal cancers. But we know that warts are, are in the environment. We get them on their hands. We get them on our feet. They're passed uh, from person to person. They're also passed from a person to an inanimate object like a spoon or eating utensil and then into the next person's oral cavity. So the dentist and the hygienist may see uh, what's called a veruca form, sort of a cauliflower-like appearance of a lesion, very corrugated, uh, indurate, uh, undulating surface. And these are suspicious lesions, uh, ones that often uh, would be recommended or in almost all cases to be removed. Uh, but the potential of preventing those from forming uh, if the patient has had the HPV vaccine uh, has been shown to be very, very effective with almost zero risk. So I would, again, encourage all our listeners, if they themselves have not had the HPV vaccine, to check with their healthcare provider, their primary care physician, to obtain those, and then also consider recommending for themselves and their families as well as their patients. Mm -hmm. And how long has that vaccine been around? It's been around for about 12 years. There's three different versions of it, and uh, I don't want to provide specific medical advice. Uh, that's something to talk about with your uh, physician, but most of them will provide uh, protection against HPV 16 and 18, and those are the two ones that cause the oral cancers. Mm -hmm. Are there any preventive measures that the dentist can recommend to the patient? So in addition to uh, uh, getting the vaccine, uh, of course, speaking about cigarette smoking cessation, uh, again, asking our adolescents and young adult patients about vaping. Uh, we tend to feel that vaping is, quote, safer because there's a less nicotine content. But uh, we will see that in heavy smokers uh, and in vapors, about uh, one quarter of the same genes are affected uh, that are known to cause and have a higher propensity for forming oral cancer. So, again, shifting from cigarettes to vaping has been thought and has been actually shown to be a way to get off nicotine in general, but the ultimate goal is to eliminate any forms of nicotine use. Of course, in conjunction with that, the use of, of daily alcohol uh, should be counseled about to our patients. Uh, there's obviously uh, general health effects of excessive alcohol use, but again, the alcohol does directly attack our oral tissues. Uh, it removes the surface coating that is protective and then allows other environmental insults that can start the process of a carcinogenic reaction forming. So the natural coating of our tissues is actually important. Uh, certain mouth rinses that contain a lot of alcohol will strip the normal mucosa, causing secondary reactions and potentially causing a, a higher chance of oral cancer, although it's hard to make a definitive cause and effect in that area. Yeah, I guess the mechanism with what you just described is similar to acid reflux. Statistics show that patients that have acid reflux have a higher chance of getting pharyngeal cancer, starting with exactly that. right. Yeah, so yeah, that's, that's, it must be disrupting that normal mucosa that protects the. So the alcohol effect is similar to the acid effect in acid reflux, I assume. That's what it seems. Uh, you know, it could certainly be a byproduct uh, of the metabolism of the alcohol, but it does seem to be a stripping. And, and think of it as a natural coating. We're stripping away, and now those tissues that normally had some insulation or protection are now directly exposed to whatever else is our environment, including secondhand smoke and things that you may not even directly uh, uh, consuming yourself mm -hmm. or your patient.
Sure. So what are the statistics regarding outcomes once oral cancer is diagnosed, and how has that changed over the years? Yeah, so let me give you the good news and the bad news. In, in early stages of finding oral cancer, cure is almost a 92% five-year survival rate. So that's, that's excellent in stage one disease with very small lesions, less than one centimeter in diameter. The problem is once you get past that into stage two and onwards, the rate severely drops to less than 50%. And so the problem is early detection or the issue is early detection. So if we and our patients can detect a lesion earlier, we can get a better outcome. The bad news is that uh, nationally, our oral cancer death rates are not improving at all. They're remaining about the same and slightly increasing. And that's, again, thought to be the insult of, of the HPV virus. So the issue is that many times, most times, oral cancerous lesions are non-painful. As the tumor develops, it kills the nerve ending, so the patient doesn't feel it. Uh, it's a slow growing process, usually initially in many cases. So it's been there for many, many months and slowly getting larger. So the patient themselves, well, yeah, I, I've had that. I've noticed something funny back there, but it just felt a little rough with my tongue or something like that. So again, uh, earlier diagnosis, uh, early treatment findings allows us a, a less major operation for the patient. Uh, most oral cancers are not treated with primary radiation or chemotherapy, but, but surgery and then sometimes adjunctively with chemotherapy and mostly radiation uh, afterwards. But, you know, uh, dissecting people's necks, taking out lymph nodes, removing sections of their jaw, the floor of the mouth, and, and reconstructing them is, is a tough process uh, for patients to deal with. Not only do they need to heal from their disease, but now their functional intake is also restricted as well, and their overall nutritional status starts to drop off. So we have that important role, again, ourselves, our staff, our team, to evaluate our patients, look very closely, uh, maintain that index of suspicion, uh, consider uh, referral. Uh, there are other techniques besides blade biopsies that can be used. Uh, we think about uh, the pap smear that's used for vaginal cervical cancer is not applicable in the mouth because the oral tissues form too much keratotic tissue. So you'd have to use what's called a brush biopsy. We're actually scraping away cells. And, and that does not provide the pathologist a lot of great information because they don't see the actual tissue thickness. So uh, early diagnosis, incisional blade biopsies are, are still the, the thoughts of the, of the best way, the gold standard for diagnosis. And again, just coming back to your question uh, and comment that early diagnosis is, is where the rubber meets the road. And if we can focus on that, include that as part of our diagnosis and treatment of our patients, I think we can improve outcomes for our, our group of patients. So when you talk about adjuncts, what are the, some of the things the dentist can use in their office that doesn't have a huge footprint that they could regularly use with their staff, their dental hygienist, um, and hopefully not need a lot of training to help with early detection? So uh, there is a natural tendency for tissues to fluoresce in response to certain light wavelengths. So utilizing uh, your curing lights that we all have in our offices for setting uh, composites and other materials that will actually cause tissue to fluoresce. Now we need to focus on what are the significant responses. So using a screening uh, uh, lens over your eyes, it's usually green. Uh, there's one called Gockley's uh, that's used. And what you'll see is actually a total green generic area inside the oral cavity, but the suspicious areas will look dark. And the reason is that uh, pre-malignant cells, uh, uh, dysplasias do not fluoresce or kick out and respond the same amount of light reflection as does healthy tissue. 
So this may help the dentist locate an area. Uh, we always know, of course, that in the oral cavity, there's insults, pizza burns, hot coffees, and things like that. And of course, those lesions should heal within two weeks. So having a patient back two weeks later, doing a quick check, having our staff check it, uh, taking a picture of it, uh, allows us to compare, is this getting better? Is it staying the same or is it getting worse? And that may allow earlier referral to someone who can actually get an incisional biopsy and then determine what further treatment may be needed. So a lot of good adjuncts uh, that are coming out. I think as everything in our field, we want to stay aware of new technologies and make sure to embrace things that have been shown to be proven effective and can provide some good outcomes for our patients. But the primary thing will be our own visual inspection, our own palpation, feeling the patient's neck area underneath the jaw for any lumps and bumps that are present on one side and not on the other side, and then considering early referral and making the patient aware of their problems. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And just for the listeners out there, the product that Dr. Lieblick was referring to is Gockles, and that's by a company called Perel Pharma. They also make Articane, so they're very big in, in local anesthetic solution. And um, Gockles, I think, is is very cool because what I've seen at the dental shows and in some of the offices any curing light could be used. So you take your typical curing light, place it in the mouth, and you put these, they're kind of like goggles. They call them goggles. Um, you pronounce the gockles. I'm not sure. Am I pronouncing no, it? Yeah. No, I'm pronouncing it wrong. I can never pronounce it. Yeah. So I think it's called, it's pronounced goggles. And I, again, <clears throat> you purchase these, these glasses or these goggles, they're called goggles, and you put them on and put the curing light in the mouth and you'll be able to see the green indicating health. Is that correct, Dr. Lieblick? And then the dark areas could be early signs of dysplasia? That is exactly correct. And as you mentioned, you're using any variety of curing light. There's no particular brand needed because uh, that will emit the blue light that's needed for the fluorescence. And in fact, I think they also have an iPhone attachment that you could then take a picture through it and then import that into your record. And then, of course, uh, see the patient back and then follow that area as well, too. So a lot of interesting technology and, and things we can really utilize. And in all honesty, I think patients appreciate it. Uh, it's, it's something that shows we're not just concerned about the MOD on number 30, but their overall health. Yeah, no, absolutely. And if, you, if anybody wants information on that product, just visit uh, Perel Pharma, Google Perel Pharma, um, and you'll, you'll find it. Thank you very much, Dr. Lieblick. We do appreciate your insight into this. Uh, as always, a true professional, your words of wisdom on uh, talking about oral cancer are unparalleled. Nobody else that I've heard in the industry talk about cancer of the mouth that you, the way you do. And your lectures are great, and we hope to have you on Viva Learning in the future on those topics and other oral surgery topics as well, hopefully soon. Well, thank you, Phil. And my privilege to be part of a profession that I think pro provides a lot of great things for our patients. So we just need to keep, keep looking forward. 